downloads are increasing weekly, and today we have another guest that will make you listen. Pamela Barnum has such an interesting background, and it shows that meeting one person can really help you decide on a career. She tells you about never having the same day twice as a police officer. And I love, you must listen to it, what she says to her kid to get information out of it. And let me tell you, we did this recently in a deposition. Take a listen, hear her story, and also hear what she likes to watch these days on the television. Let's get started. We have another lawyer today, and you know how super selective I am with lawyers. So I want to introduce you to Pamela Barnum, aka the trust agent. And we'll get to your sort of um, elevator speech, but yours is going to be long because you've done a lot of very cool things. But we kind of start with a speed round of word association. When you hear the word fraud, what do you think of? White collar. Ooh, I like that. Okay. How about ethics? Law. Oh, okay. And um, who makes better embezzlers, men or women? Women. Oh, you said that really quickly. Can I ask why? Women have a way of communicating that is harder to detect when it comes to deception and I just think it's, I think women are better at that. I think that uh, they're less likely to be suspects as well. Hashtag never underestimate a woman or hashtag never (laughs) underestimate Gladys. Um, Okay, so that is an awesome way to start. Pamela, why don't you give the fraudish audience sort of your background? Well, Kelly, thanks for inviting me. I've been excited about this since we first connected because, you know, I really feel like I'm among my people. Um, Even though my background is all around drug enforcement, I was the only woman in a very large uh, drug enforcement unit that worked undercover. And I did that for about a decade and then started a family, became very difficult to uh, buy cocaine as a mom. So I took a job at the uh, federal prosecutor's office. Uh, Initially, I did it at the provincial prosecutor's office. And then as soon as my articling time was finished, I transferred into the feds and worked there for quite a while and then started uh, connecting with cool people and telling stories from stage. And that's where I'm at now. So it's been a really, really interesting journey. But the, the through line of everything that I have done has always focused around law enforcement and trust and just connecting people in ways that make communication more authentic. And um, yeah, we, we walked through lots of different things, including some deception and, but fraud, you know, I did a very short stint. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in what we call Annie rackets and it was the fraud unit. And I did that while I was pregnant because I, you know, as soon as I found out, I transferred into a different office out of drug enforcement and they put me in the fraud office and it was very interesting. Like you have to have the patience of a saint to investigate frauds because, you know, unlike drugs where, you know, the the, the moving parts are very different. I I found fraud to be so, um, there, there was just so much that went into it and you really, you're in for the long game so to speak, with fraud. So I found that 
you know, it was, I learned a ton. I think if I had stayed in law enforcement, it would have been a, like, I love the drugs. Drugs are fast and exciting and lots of risk and, you know, crazy times. But, um, the the brain power that it takes to investigate the frauds and just how you have to see all of these moving parts at once i found fascinating and i'm i'm still very interested in that area oh so this is this made me think of um when you're talking about drugs because i was a custom special agent in seattle so not too far from where you practiced um but we deal with bad guys and that's kind of, you know, people don't think of bad guys as bad women. And True. there was one case I had where um, the husband was, let's just call the husband was a bad guy and he's already in prison. And um, he had managed to take quite a bit of cash out of the country. And his wife, who wasn't in prison, would go over to Europe every so often. And she'd come back and she'd have cash wrapped around her body. And mm -hmm. she put on baggy, baggy clothes. Well, <laughs> someone noticed that um, her son like got hit on by the drug dog. And so okay. then they all did it. But so she wasn't the mastermind, but she was the one who kept the family going because she mm -hmm. would do these trips to Europe, you know, kind of on the guise of, oh, I'm taking my kids to Europe. But basically she was going to pick up the cash to run the household for the next year. Right. Yeah. So we kind of don't think of the women as like, you know, the masterminds. And I don't think she was, um, but she did what it took for her family to stay, you know, living kind of sort of like they did before dad went to prison. Absolutely. And did you have that sort of experience when you were in the drugs that the women kind of were accessories more so? It just depended on the product. I would say to generalize for sure, but there were definitely women who uh, were, you know, the running their own show, so to speak, but definitely not to the extent because women, I think I've often mentioned, you know, the, the glass ceiling in the criminal world is bulletproof. It's not, they, they have not caught up with the Me Too movement. They haven't even heard of the Me Too movement. So the guys that are, you know, the the criminals that have been operating for a while, like I'm talking organized ones, not street level, you know, one-offs. Um, I'm talking like bikers, organized crime, like serious criminals that they ha have, it's an organization, it's a business. Uh, it's mostly men because men still rule the world. They still think of women as less than, as property, as disposable and, you know, that definitely when I was working undercover, that was absolutely the case. You know, we're talking 20 years ago it was it was different. But I went to speak to a group of 200 undercover officers in the United States. And it was interesting to me because about those 200 officers and the majority of them worked undercover. Some of them didn't. Some of them were surveillance investigators, warrant writers, as usual. But the good majority of them actually did some undercover work. And there were only four women in the audience out of 200. And out of those four women, only two of them worked undercover. So I was one of 92. And there was, again, the same odds, give or take, you know, more than 20 years later. And when I was talking to them, nothing has changed. It's the same attitudes. It's the same bravado. It's, you know, that whole macho 
uh, world that exists, it's not much has changed. Okay, this just popped into my head. Um, did you watch Queen of the South? I did. Yeah, Teresa, like, okay, first off, I read the book, and this is so funny. I read the book in Mexico when a long, long time ago, I was so obsessed to finish that book that I literally left my purse in the Mexico City airport. Oh, Not no. Um, but I loved the book. And then I watched the, um, you know, the series. And yeah, she makes it seem like she's burst through the glass ceiling. But like, and then did you ever watch Weeds? I watched a little bit of Weeds. You know, I wasn't as interested in that one. But Ozark is another great example of that. With Wendy, you know, she was the mastermind. She was more devious than anyone on that show. I won't give any spoilers for people who haven't watched it. But, um, and, you know, I think definitely not in Breaking Bad, we don't see that. Um, but I, I thought Queen of the South was a great show. Now, of course, like you said, it's, you know, highly unlikely that that's going to happen. But there are cartels uh, where, you know, women have definitely elevated to strength positions. Um, you know, you think now even you see that that's happening occasionally and it's fascinating to me. But uh, yeah, Queen of the South, I loved the premise that, you know, she was always trying to hold on to her humanity and trying to balance that with what she needed to do to get the job done. So I thought that was, you know, that's says a lot. It was a really yeah. good program. Yeah, I thought so too. I definitely thought so. Um, so you are known as the trust agent. And you guys, I'm going to put plenty of sh links in the show notes. Uh, Pamela's done a great TEDx talk. She has a great, as we call it in the speaker world, sizzle reel on her website. So I'll put those in there. But how did you come to the term trust agent? Because I really like that because, well, everyone knows I trust no one. Like that's kind of the family joke is I trust no one. But you do have to trust people. Otherwise, you can't get out of bed in the morning. But I love how you came up to the trust agent. Did that just kind of pop in or? No, it was. I was um, doing a few things online and people would see me speaking and I thought, you know, I would love to do a podcast one day. I haven't done it yet because it just hasn't because I can appreciate how much work goes into doing a podcast. It's commitment. And I was just toying with the idea and a business coach that I have not worked with personally, but that I knew through acquaintances suggested that she said you know what is it exactly that you think you can offer so i went through a few things that i think i serve my clients with and what my messaging is and she said have you thought of the trust agent and i was like i don't know like is it like a real estate agent and she's and she said no you know think about undercover agent when you think about because i was going to do something with the word undercover in it but you know she was undercover and trust you know some people see that not being in alignment and then you were an undercover agent you talk about trust and trust agents so that's how that came to be well which then leads into empathy and you and i are big believers in empathy so um i've just finished a chapter for chelsea bin and bruce uh sackman's book but like as an undercover agent you must like develop rapport which a lot of times leads to some empathy wouldn't you say 
Well, I'd say all of them. I think, you know, clearly there's challenges when you're working uh, with people and among people who are doing terrible things and, you know, harming lives. People are dying. Communities are disrupted. It's a whole, I really believe just about every crime outside of, and even oftentimes inside the home, uh, starts with drugs. Um, either uh legal prescription drug addictions, uh, illicit drug addictions. And we're seeing that even more today with influx of drugs that I am grateful didn't exist at my time when I was working because things are so dangerous now. And, you know, just such minuscule amounts that people may not even know exist can be deadly. And I don't think, you know, we're doing a great job as communities communicating that as putting officers at risk and healthcare and kids. And it's just a whole new ball game. But I still believe the best undercover officers were those that are amazing at perspective taking, which is how I would describe empathy. And I think anyone in law enforcement, any career, really fraud investigation, if you I'm not saying that you have to sympathize with people. But if you can understand that everybody has their own story, everybody has, you know, something that's happened in their life and you see the humanity in front of you, that makes a huge difference in how you can do your job. It it has a lot to do with emotional intelligence. Um, I think that people who score high on empathy also score very high in emotional intelligence and the research backs that up. Um, so yeah, I could talk about empathy all day. I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I had a boss and the people who have heard this podcast many times who I had, um, I did an interview in his office and uh, the kid came out and the boss heard us kind of giggling in there. And he's like, I never want to hear a laughter in my office. They should be crying in my office. And I'm like, okay, asshole. Um, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> We never know what a person is going through. And exactly. Yeah. And And when people feel that you see them as a human being, regardless of what's happened, you're going to get oftentimes more information, more clues, more evidence than you would if you came across as somebody who's abrasive and aggressive. Um, You know, we, we look at interviewing techniques now and, um, there was an interview done in Canada, actually, with uh, Detective uh, Smith. His first name is slipping my mind. But he um, interviewed a colonel in the Canadian military who was wanted for multiple murders. He was a serial killer. Oh, and he wow. violently sexually assaulted. His name will come to me, of course, probably near the end of this podcast. But um, he... And they had no evidence and he had no criminal record. He was running the military base, Canada's largest air force base. This guy, he was in control of that uh, well-respected officer and um, had started out, you know, peeping through windows, stealing undergarments. And then it led to sex assaults and then it escalated and escalated to murder and sex assault. And one really keen a uniform officer noted that all they had was a tire track at one of the scenes because there'd been snow. One really keen officer during a, a check because the, um, the, the Colonel lived 
in had a cottage near where one of the victims were, but a distance away. And it was a remote area, saw the tire track. Anyway, puts one piece together. That's all they have is this tire track. They don't have anything else. And I'm sure they, you know, there was some other evidence that hadn't been released, but a polygraph officer went in to interview the suspect and I, I did a presentation for some former FBI agents. And after the presentation, and uh, one of them came up and talked to me after. He said, you know, we use a Canadian interview as the gold star standard for interviewing. Uh, and we use that particular interview. And you can, you can watch part of it on YouTube, I think. And it's fascinating because it's all about building rapport and appealing to somebody's decency. And that's what he was doing you know do you do you want to see us go into your home and your this is how your wife is going to find out about what you're accused of you know is this so just clearly that wasn't the whole interview there was there was this whole build up around it and he confessed to everything during that interview it was fascinating to watch and there was no you know hammering on the table and yelling and screaming it was all about relationship building now i can't say it was necessarily empathy it was clearly an investigative technique, uh, but it worked remarkably well. Well, so this, uh, my son got kind of stranded, not stranded, but the planes got delayed and everything. And he's like, oh, I'm so mad. And I'm texting him, you know, late, late at night. And I said, if you be mean or an asshole to the gate people, you're going to be stuck in Iceland. And it's scientific. And I told him it's scientifically proven niceness gets you places. And my daughter apparently was also texting him saying the same thing, like, don't be an asshole. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. you don't. We have this vision, at least I'm going to say the older ones in the crowd of, you know, the old TV shows where they're in there and they're just there's good cop and there's bad cop. And, you know, it it isn't that way. The one of the Mm -hmm. best detectives I worked with was so unassuming. He was kind of like Columbo, Peter Falk in Columbo, very much so. Um, and because, you know, he he literally wore the trench coat and everything, and he was he could get anything out of anyone. Um, now you do something in your sizzle reel that I really, really like where you analyze, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but you analyze someone with the audio on, and then you analyze it with it muted. Oh, yeah, that was the federal elections here in Canada. So I watched uh, the debates without uh, listening, and then I watched them with with being able to hear what they said. And so I was on uh, our national news program here talking about how, you know, trustworthy, what their reactions were communicating. It was really interesting to watch. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in that type of thing to do exactly that, to watch. And we never really intellectually realize how important nonverbal cues are to the messaging that we're getting back because we're listening to the words and we're so often so focused, you know, what did they say? What are we going to say next? But if we have that luxury, that's why, you know, so many amazing investigators, they videotape interviews clearly for evidence purposes, but it's also great to be able to then, you know, go back and just look at things to see those nuances, to see where things shifted. And that can tell you much more than the words actually being said. 
Well, you know, we both do presentations and I haven't seen you present. I hope to see you present, but um, I, <laughs> I was watching someone present the other day and um, it was online and the slides had so many words and our brains can't, it's the same thing. Our brains can't look at the words and hear the words and you lose so much. And so it's like, I initially did pictures because I didn't want people to copy my intellectual property. So it was kind of selfish to begin with, but then, you know, the more I'm speaking and training on this stuff, it's like, no, they can't do the same thing twice. Like our brains just don't work that way. They don't. That's why phone numbers are seven digits because that's what the average person can remember. Too many words on the slide. People are, wondering, am I supposed to be paying attention to this? Am I supposed to be listening? Am I supposed to be taking notes? What's happening? And everybody learns differently. Um, but, and, and no offense to the engineers out there, but sometimes they are very challenging when it comes to listening to their presentations because they communicate a certain way and their thought press, the thought process is very, you know, logical and linear, but we, when we're just sitting we need to have more engagement, especially now where everything is so short. You know, people are watching 30 second videos. And even when they're watching the news, there's the ticker tape down the bottom and like 10 other videos happening in the screen. And our brains are now being programmed to not focus for long periods of time. We need bursts. We need photos. We need information coming at us in a way that we can easily digest. Yeah. And I do have to give you a shout out in your TEDx talk. You're wearing a pink shirt. So I think we were meant to meet. (laughs) And you're wearing this bright pink shirt that is just absolutely lovely. Um, What would you say to the audience? Some of the best places that you get training or information. Um, I mean, I'm a huge behavioral science person, so I always Mm -hmm do that. But for you in trust and empathy and body language, where do you go to get your training? Well, I'm fortunate that I um, still have access to university resources. I have you know, a law degree and I have a graduate degree and my alumni email gets me into the library still. So I read a lot of peer reviewed studies that happen in my field. Um, I like to read textbooks about it. I have, oh, where's uh, one right here uh, on my bookshelf. That's really interesting for people that are interested in deception detection. It's called Duped Truth Default Theory and the Social Science of Lying and Deception by Timothy Levine. And he's a professor at University of Alabama in Birmingham. So really interesting. And behavior, uh, you talk about uh, being a student of uh, human behavior. I am as well. Another friend of mine who I was in the drug unit with many moons ago, and then he moved on to behavioral sciences and uh, polygraph work. He sends me, you know, when he would go away on courses, he sent me the research or the presentations that he would hear. And so I could keep on top of that. And then I belong to a couple of groups in LinkedIn that follow, um, things that I speak about and that I research so I can see, you know, cutting edge, what's happening, what's, who's saying what, where controversy is. And um, yeah, so I I like to keep up to date on all of, and then there's fun things too. You know, you see some people on YouTube and doing things like that, but 
you know, some of them are not good, uh, but it, it's, it's interesting to, to watch that too. Yeah. So I have that same book and I found him via Malcolm Gladwell's book. And then, so, oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, Malcolm Gladwell gave him a shout out. So I immediately went on Amazon and I have that book too. We probably oh, that never... was from talking with strangers or talking yep. to strangers. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yes. um, his thing is, is like, you know, you go to the dentist and if the dentist says you have a cavity, you're like, prove it. We don't do that. Like, it's just not a good world if you can't trust everyone. Like, and, you know, we talked before the show, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Absolutely. And I'm glad that we have this truth default that we go to because society would not function if we couldn't believe that the waiter told us that the food was fresh if we thought someone was going to cross the yellow line on the wrong way in traffic uh, if we you know thought our bank was going to withhold something or our employer wasn't going to pay us you know we trust all the time and which is a good thing but oftentimes you know we neglect those clues that are staring us in the face you know whenever i did an investigation when i was in uniform inevitably the victims would always say uh you know i should have seen this or i missed this you know they're beating themselves up thinking about all replaying the real in their brain but when you're in the middle of it when you're in the moment it's not natural often to think or we get into this self-protective mode where we don't want to believe that so we ignore it it's like you know with cheating spouses etc um every person who's been in a relationship with someone who was unfaithful can probably and you know if they're honest look back and pinpoint exactly when that started to happen they know but they ignore it because it's very painful or their kids start going off the rails and lying to them and they know but they don't want because somehow admitting it or acknowledging it makes it true whereas ignoring it and putting the blinders on protects us somehow and that's just human nature it's not it doesn't make people bad or you know unintelligent it just makes them human beings well and that's funny that you mentioned it and i'll put it in the show notes hidden brain just had an episode Um, and I had the pleasure of meeting Shankar Vedantam before COVID, just delightful. Um, but it's like when you, you know, it, it was about a romance scam. And um, it's like when you just have to believe it, even though everything tells you you shouldn't be believing it. So I'll put that in the show notes. It's a really good story. And of course, I'm no spoilers. Um but yeah, we we want to believe. Um, but you know what's so funny? You just reminded me of something. I moved recently and they shut off my cable, even though I had sent automatic payments and I had moved addresses. And so I thought I'd have the same account number. So my automatic payment apparently referred to my old account number. And I called because in a fit one day, I couldn't get on the internet. And I was like, "Mm, well, and they sent me to billing and I'm like, why billing? And, um, So long story short, you know, it all got fixed, but they charged me a reconnect fee. And I said, oh, no, no, you're not going to charge me a reconnect fee because you guys like gave me a new account number when I only needed a new address. And, you know, and sure enough, I look at my bill this month 
and they show the $25 fee that she told me I will remove it. So it's trust, but verify. So even if you trust someone, but if there's an issue, you really need to do that verification. So you gave me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as investigators, you have a son and I have children. Um, We can kind of, I'm going to say test. (laughs) We can kind of test and they don't know sometimes when we're testing. Is that your experience that you can test? Subtly. Oh, absolutely. I think any parent out there, especially moms, I'm going to give a shout out to the moms because we seem to have this, you know, innate and there's probably research around this biological connection with our children to be able to uh, really understand and see what's going on. And, you know, my son is he's been amazing. I have zero complaints. He's a great kid. But he's he went he's, you know, just 18 now. He's gone through those teenage years and it's natural for teenagers to lie you know from 13 to 17 they lie more than any other age group on the planet and it's because their brains are developing in a way that they are more prone to risk and they are trying to leave the nest so to speak so they are doing things and testing things and as most teenagers they don't think that the rest of us went through those experiences and we don't really get it so they will lie and, and oftentimes they will lie for no reason. There's no reason for them to lie. They are just doing it. And I've talked to many, many parents after presentations and they're like, that's exactly it. You know, I'm right there with the evidence or I'm right there with the car. Or I'm right there with the half empty bottle of whatever alcohol. And they'll lie even though they intellectually know they're caught. But their brains can't help it. That's just what they do. They, they lie. And so I have a question that I've asked my son a couple of times, and I promised him that if and when he ever becomes a parent, I would share this with him. And it has worked like a charm, so much so that friends of mine who are parents have used it, and it has worked for them. And I've given out uh, either some in some presentations it works, and others it's when you're out after you've given your presentation and you're in the the lobby bar or the VIP dinner or wherever, and I'll have conversations with people, but I get LinkedIn messages about how well this works. So essentially, if you have this suspicion and you have zero evidence, but you are suspicious, then I just lean in uh, very closely and, you know, I'll be having a casual conversation. So, you know, how, how was the party last night or who was there or, you know, those typical questions and you get the one word answers or evasive answers, but you have no real evidence, nothing bad happened. They came home on time or whatever it is. But I, you know, when you're suspicious, you're usually right, especially around your kids. So I just lean in and say, you know, I'm gonna ask you something and no pressure. I just want you to take your time. But before you answer, I want you to ask yourself, what does she already know? And then I just stay silent because our kids know that, or they, they've been told often enough that lying is worse than usually the actual deed. Like you can do whatever, just don't lie to me, right? Every parent says that in some way, shape or form at some point. So the kids know that, but they think you've got something because if you play it cool, and give them lots of time, no pressure. But before you answer, 
take all the time you need, but just ask yourself before, you know, what, what do I already know? Um, he's blurted out about alcohol at a party that wasn't supposed to be there under age. Um, where we live, you can only, when you get your learner's permit, you can only have either people that are related to your parents or one other passenger in the vehicle. I learned about, you know, the vehicle being full of kids uh, when there's only supposed to be one, like all these things that I had zero clue other than something just felt off and he confessed everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads into the behavioral science and Danny Kahneman system one and system two, the slowing down, the pregnant pause. Um, if you step right on it, they're mm. not going to give you the potential answer. Like exactly. I just had a negotiation with someone and I just paused and I got what I wanted without having to, let's just say, add to the pile. Yeah, uh, silence is powerful. Oh, silence is so powerful. So, so powerful. Oh, my gosh. Um, what haven't I asked you that you want to get across to the audience? But before you do that, really quickly, did you grow up wanting to be a cop? You know, I grew up thinking of being a lawyer, but not a criminal lawyer. I always thought I would be in some sort of business law for some reason or another. And then, you know, my um, my mom remarried and her new brother-in-law was a police officer. And then at holiday time, he would be telling these stories. And I was fascinated by it. And he was like a uniform cop. So, you know, he wasn't uh, like there were interesting stories like drunk driver or this kind of thing, like, you know, interesting stuff, especially back, you know, I was very fascinated by it. I thought, what, like, the thing that he said that really caught me was he'd never had the same day twice. So working as a police officer, never had the same, and I thought, it, it, he didn't have to say anything after that. I thought, that's for me, never have the same day twice. So amazing. And I had a huge respect for law enforcement, and he said, you know, before, so I told him I want to be a cop. He said, you got to go to university first and get a degree and get some maturity and figure things out. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I did that. And then when I went to police college, it was interesting because there were some people there who had, you know, been in high school, had a little, had a job or something after became a police officer. There was one woman who had, she was only like 20, I think. Um, and just came almost right out of high school. And personally, I think a little bit of life experience is very, very beneficial in law enforcement because you have a ton of responsibility and a lot of stress and a lot of unknowns. And I think if you have a little bit of life under you, uh, it, it makes your job easier and you're better at it. But, um, I've worked with amazing people and law enforcement gets the uh, the shaft, so to speak, in the public opinion on more than, you know, definitely more than it should. We, we have to look at the fact that officers respond to tens of millions of calls a year and manage them perfectly and as best as anybody could in circumstances. And are there some bad cops? 100%. Are there some bad teachers who do bad things and religious leaders and parents and coaches and you name a profession and you will find bad people in that profession because they're human beings. So uh, I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying 
perspective is everything because you have a 99.9% chance of having a police officer show up that is a remarkable human being who is not showing, even though they've just left a serious crime scene or abuse involving a child or delivered a death notification, but they show up to you as though none of that happened and they are giving you the best uh, response they possibly can. And I, they don't get enough thanks in my books. I could have never been a uniform police officer. I know I couldn't have. And I was asked to be one. And I was like, no, I'm very anonymous. Like no one, no one knew. Like I worked in a regular office building and it wasn't, um, you know, I, I, I was uncomfortable when we would do secret service protection. They'd pull us in sometimes and everyone could tell because you're there in the black zoot suit and your dark glasses. Even that made me uncomfortable. So for the ones in uniform, it is so hard because you've got so many eyes looking at you all the time. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I knew myself, I couldn't do it. So big kudos to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Big kudos. So back to the, what question haven't I asked you that you want to get across? And I want this from a perspective, maybe of you've really been able to transition from government, law enforcement, but you take that expertise into the private sector. And I really love how you've been able to do that. Well, thank you. It's been great. And, you know, the the common theme among all of that is when you're dealing with people, behaviors repeat themselves, people are predictable. And if you study people and you paid attention to people when you see them at their best and seeing them at their worst, it gives you a lot of perspective that you can bring into different careers. And I've been very fortunate to have one now, exactly that. I speak to the private sector the majority of time. I still get hired by governments and police agencies to come in, but for the most part, um, it's corporations. And the skill set that you bring is all about human behavior. You know, I market myself, and people, when they think of me, oftentimes think of, trust and nonverbal communication skills. And really all of that is just human behavior and emotional intelligence named something different that's relatable in their scenario. So that's that's where um, that's that's where I have the most fun. I enjoy it. I love it. I love reading about it, talking to people like you, talking to people who are, you know, geek out on the same kind of stuff. So I appreciate that. Um, and then uh, finishing off, you mentioned, well, we talked about Queen of the South, Weeds and Ozark, and I'm a huge, I am Team Ruth. I am not Team Wendy. Um, <laughs> definitely Team Ruth. Um, any other thing in sort of pop culture that you, that like, have you done the, have you watched the Madoff series or anything that you would suggest in the fraud and pop culture world that our audience might like? Yeah, you know, I am just finishing. Oh, well, of course, I don't think, you know, Yellowstone and um, doesn't really qualify in the fraud, but it's definitely entertaining. I like it. I probably love it because I don't know anything about ranching or I live, you know, I border with Montana, which is great. I go into Montana all the time. So I think I was extra attracted to that show because of that. But we started watching um, The Mayor of Kingstown, too. Uh, the mayor of Kingstown, which is by the same creator, Taylor Sheridan. And it has drug component. Cause I love shows like that and crime, but you know, 
I think oftentimes when you come from this background, you watch those types of shows, it can be difficult because you see things and think, ah, I don't know. Like that's, I won't give anything away, but there's a couple of things that I hit road bumps on. Um, Tulsa King is great show with uh, Sylvester Stallone. Amazing. I love that one. And he is a remarkable example of empathy, I think, in a main character. You know, he's a mafia guy. He went to prison. He's killed people. He's done these things. But you can't help yourself but root for him. You're in his corner all the time. And because he is a likable empathetic human being in this show um and, and i i recommend it to anyone who's into the, those types of shows and of course narcos i'm big big fan steve murphy's remarkable guy so uh those are my kind of shows and i will put in the show notes the podcast episode you did with Stephen javier um oh, yeah nice. i'm watching tulsa king and that's the same what you said about it Sylvester Stallone goes to prison, no spoilers, for 25 years to, you know, just basically for loyalty and he yeah. gets screwed. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, so characters are really complicated. Nothing mm-hmm. is black and white. No. And, no, and, and, and viewing audience is so smart now. Uh, not that we weren't, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, but they're definitely a lot more sophisticated because we have access to more information. And it it's remarkable to me that we can have... Now, not every show is great, and we all have different opinions on different programs, but, you know, I never thought I would watch something as good as Breaking Bad until I watched Ozark. And I didn't think I would like something as well as Ozark until I watched Tulsa King. And so... There are some great, if that's your thing, some people like the Hallmark channel, that's not for me, but um, I think, you know, there's lots of good stuff out there. There, there is so much good stuff out there. And I do a fraud and pop culture class and people are always giving me um, examples of stuff they do. So this is great. We, yeah, we have a lot of the same taste. Well, Pamela, thank you so much for being on Fraudish. You guys, like I say, reach out to the guests on LinkedIn. Pamela posts great stuff. I'll have wonderful um, show notes. And thank you again. Thank you, Kelly. so easy to be undercover. I did undercover work when I was with U.S. Customs and I was nervous each time. I generally played a money launderer, but also was an undercover mail delivery person and a nurse. When you know all your colleagues are watching, it also makes you nervous. Be sure to watch Pamela's TEDx talk and connect with her on LinkedIn. Have a great week. Connect with Pamela, read a book, and listen to a podcast. Thank you so much.